If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Our podcast series marking the centenary of the BBC has now reached a turn of a new millennium, a period in which the corporation was involved in a series of scandals, both new and historical. In today's instalment, historian David Hendy spoke to Matt Elton about some of these scandals and what they can tell us about the BBC, as well as its relationships with politicians and the British public. So, David, we ended the last episode by exploring the ways in which changes in technology had allowed for reporting of things like the Gulf War to be different from previous conflicts. Did these new changes in technology continue to have a profound effect across the BBC as we head on into the 1990s? Technology certainly still looms large uh, throughout the 1990s and the early years of the 21st century. If we think back to uh, the 1980s, we we touched on the importance of a kind of expanding media with satellite and cable. In the 1990s, uh, and especially towards the end of that decade, we're really dealing with a BBC that has to come to terms with the internet and the World Wide Web and the changes that that brings more broadly to the media. And and it seemed a, a profound challenge, really, to the BBC, the, the arrival of the, the internet as a kind of popular uh, entity, because here was an institution that had built its reputation, it, its situation in the world, its dominance on the twin pillars of radio and television. And it's not just that a, a new medium, in effect, comes along through, uh, through the internet, but also new players, American corporations uh, with big interests in new media. If you think at the beginning, there were companies like Netscape, uh, real player uh, company, Microsoft comes along, later it's Apple. And and these big corporations have the kind of resources and the focus on uh, on new media to be able to kind of challenge the BBC's dominant position in what was a traditional uh, marketplace. Now, 
what we find in the mid-1990s is that the Director General, John Burt, whatever the complaints were about his broader policy in the BBC, his his focus on on managerialism, uh, changing editorial practices, introducing the internal market. He was an ardent technophile. So he was the right person at the right time to be leading the BBC in this new media era. And, and in 1997, he did, in that summer, something that he, he always did. He he. he had a policy of taking a week or so off to do, uh, you know, the, to use the cliched phrase, blue sky thinking or, on the future of broadcasting. And in 1997, his week off was spent uh, in the US visiting the pioneering new media companies of the time, uh, Netscape, Google, uh, uh, and, and Microsoft, and so on. And it's at that moment that he becomes totally convinced that all this chatter about what the World Wide Web could bring in terms of personalised media, uh, a virtual newspaper uh, where you could choose the stories yourself and so on. He said, you know, he became convinced very clearly that this was going to be a very big thing and that the BBC needed to be right at the centre of it. And what John Burt does is he uses his position as director general with a kind of support team of of policy and planners to bring together what's actually already happening a little bit on the factory floor of the BBC. There are lots and lots of of, um, experiments and initiatives taking place. So you've got the Hungarian service, for instance, building its own web pages. You've got other parts of the BBC um, embedding clips of old radio programmes. You've got... uh, the, the the sports service um, Radio 5 Live running a very lively message board. Uh, all of these initiatives are kind of bubbling up. BBC News is in the forefront of these. So you've got in the in the 1997 general election uh, a news organisation that actually creates something like 8,000 web pages of information. Um, so all of these are brought together and given what John Burt called a kind of gleam and a bit of funding and a bit of direction to create something more coherent. And that really is the, that's the beginning of what becomes BBC Online. And BBC Online, I think, is something that we need to remember in retrospect was a a hugely, hugely popular website. And, And it showed that in many respects, it was the BBC that was popularising the internet for for the for the British population. It was the BBC that was, for many people, their first experience of online life and and checking for news and updates and so on. So the BBC became very rapidly a prominent player in what might otherwise have been. Uh, a really profound challenge to its own position in, in British media life. That leads really nicely onto my next question, actually, which was, as the effects of these changes started to be felt into the late 1990s, did they cause an equal degree of challenge for the BBC and its competitors? And did they cause the BBC to have to sort of renegotiate its position in the media landscape? I suppose at first it felt as if the BBC had had responded very, very effectively. I mean, not just in terms of uh, of 
BBC Online, but even with iPlayer, which comes along a little bit later, uh, it's launched publicly uh, on Christmas Day 2007. Uh, and, you know, video on demand had always, John Burt said, been the, the, old, the ultimate goal. That's what he was looking for. Uh, and so, again, iPlayer, to quote the chief executive of Netflix, paved the way for a lot of streaming services. So it, it, it in the early years of the 21st century, it felt very much as if the BBC was successfully riding this kind of wave of, of technological change. There were, of course, profound challenges that started to appear. One of them was that commercial rivals started to, to grumble that this was yet another case of BBC imperialism. In other words, a kind of an institution which should stick to television and radio was starting to occupy territory that they thought uh, should be theirs. Um, and so you've got uh, uh, commercial companies who are encouraging the idea and a, a government that's receptive to the idea that the BBC needs to be kind of checked from expanding in, in these areas. And things like a, a, the public value test that the BBC have to go through when they're proposing new ideas and new departures and new services is something which acts as a kind of restraint and to give one example of that, when the BBC iPlayer was first conceived, it was very much conceived as something which would be shared, not just by the BBC, but by other broadcasters, a kind of cross-broadcaster platform. Uh, and that was suppressed. Similarly, when the iPlayer was launched, it couldn't do whole box sets of programmes and back catalogues and so on. Programmes were only available for seven days. Um, now, those aspects of iPlayer were not of the BBC's own choosing. They were imposed as a way, effectively, of making the BBC iPlayer less useful in order to give space to commercial companies. So you've got this in, in a sense, a new intensity to the arguments between the BBC and its commercial rivals about what the territorial limits of the BBC should be in this new media age. At the same time, this becomes a much more international conversation. It's not just about other British companies. You've got the rise of the of the US conglomerates, the multimedia conglomerates, YouTube and Netflix and, and Apple and so on. So that the BBC, in a very real sense, is becoming one of several broadcasters and media entities and not necessarily the biggest or the or the best funded. It, it does, however, show that the BBC, because it's grappling with things like iPlayer, because it's investing in online, that it isn't an organisation which is wedded to 20th century technology. It is reinventing itself, in a sense, as a tri-media organisation. Television, radio, online. And so I think that that's... That's a really important thing to remember is that the BBC is not static. Uh, um, it's not 
caught in the headlights here. It's trying to ride the wave of this technological change, but it becomes a a, a much more heated uh, environment where the, the risks of being left behind are much more intense. We've talked about technological changes. Did the corporate culture of the BBC also change throughout the 1990s? I think we certainly see a more commercial-minded BBC. I mean, I think that's probably something which is happening organically and had done so since the 1980s. But but that probably accelerates uh, as the broadcasting market internationalises. I mean, the BBC is... um, more alert than ever to the idea of selling programmes, selling programme formats, uh, supplementing its income in all sorts of commercial ways, um, hiring out its studios and its facilities and so on. It's certainly, if you speak to many insiders at the time, an organisation that appears to be becoming more bureaucratic, the BERT revolution, if you like, of the 1990s was about uh, creating more editorial scrutiny. And that, of course, leads to more layers of management. Um, We have to be a little bit wary, I think, of these accusations of bureaucracy. It's not that it didn't happen, but if we think back to the 1920s, I can remember Cecil Lewis, one of the founding figures of the BBC, complaining in roughly 1926 that the BBC was becoming more bureaucratic and unbearable. Um, so, so in a way, it's always the accusation of the programme makers that there are all these managers around. Um, but of course, the managers have jobs to do as well. They have to kind of count the pennies and they have to kind of develop policy and they have to think strategically and so on. But there's certainly a sense in which that kind of administrative bureaucratic superstructure of the BBC seemed to be expanding. Uh, and of course, part of it is about the BBC being more cost conscious, but cost consciousness is also expensive and bureaucratic, monitoring everything. Um, There is also the culture of independent production. This is, again, a kind of unfolding slowly of the policies that John Burt introduced uh, in the early 1990s, that more and more BBC programmes are being outsourced to independent production companies. Now, John Burt's idea was that this would bring in sort of fresh ideas and fresh ways of doing things into BBC culture. And no doubt that is true. But it also meant a drift out of the BBC of long-serving staff. And to some extent, what we see is a BBC that is losing some of its most experienced staff and in the process perhaps losing some of its institutional memory in some way. So I think that's that. those are the sort of important corporate cultural developments at this period. The one thing to say is that there is a perceptible change, I think, after John Bird, when we have Greg Dyke as the Director General. Uh, he He does bring a kind of a more buccaneering, looser, less formal approach to management. Uh, this is the era where BBC staff stop wearing ties and jackets and so on. Um, and he talks about a BBC that is hideously white, 
for instance. And and so we're, we've got in the early years of the 21st century, I think, especially under Greg Dyke, a new push for the BBC to reflect more fully the the diversity of of Britain. So so there are all sorts of different changes that are happening in the BBC, none of them especially sudden or radical, but definitely there. Another key aspect of the BBC story in this period is a series of scandals. We should talk probably firstly about the scandal that emerged in 2003 surrounding the BBC's reporting of the Iraq war and the so-called dodgy dossier. What happened and what does this story tell us about the corporation at the time? Well, if we recall going back to 2003, there is the long, uh, complicated saga of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. Did they have any weapons of mass destruction? And if so, would their presence justify allied military intervention? Now, it's in that context that on the 29th of May 2003, uh, there's a report on the Today programme on BBC Radio 4. And very early uh, in the morning, when the programme had, had barely started, you had Andrew Gilligan, who was the defence correspondent on the programme, um, conducting a so-called two-way uh, with the presenter, John Humphreys. The two-way is a kind of semi-scripted sort of d- discussion which sounds spontaneous, but which has been kind of planned. And in that discussion, he he effectively implies that um, the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, had somehow uh, misled the nation in order to send British troops into battle. And he'd done this by... Uh, producing a dossier that had made certain claims about uh, it would only take 45 minutes before Iraq could attack Britain or British interests, for instance. And what Gilligan is, is suggesting is that the British government knew that some of these intelligence claims were were weak or unfounded, but nevertheless allowed them to be uh, to appear in a dossier. Now, I mean, this is <laughs> in, in, in quite a serious allegation that the, the 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 prime minister of Britain is misleading the nation in order to send British troops into battle, um, and uh, the the new Labour uh, machine press machine swings very quickly into action. Alistair Campbell um, offers a very very fierce rebuttal. In Greg Dyke as Director General, you've got a Director General who becomes convinced that uh, every detail of the report is correct and that he must fight back equally fiercely. And and there's a kind of a sort of fraught toing and going between the government and the BBC, which starts to sort of settle down. And then there's a new twist to the story, which is that in July, Dr. David Kelly, uh, a a former UN uh, biological weapons expert, is found dead, having been revealed as Andrew Gilligan's anonymous source for his his story. And uh, this initiates an inquiry, which is headed by uh, Lord Hutton, 
uh, into what went wrong and whether or not there's any link between David Kelly's death and and uh, what the BBC had been reporting. Hutton reports in January 2004, and it's actually a report which is pretty devastating to the BBC. He suggests that Andrew Gilligan's central allegations were unfounded, to use his precise words, and that the BBC's editorial system had been defective. Now, when the report is out, the BBC's chairman, Gavin Davis, resigns. The governors are in a state of panic. They ask the Director General, Greg Dyke, to resign. He goes. There's a new chairman, the Tory peer, Richard Ryder, and a new acting Director General, Mark Bayford, and they... uh, a new acting director general, Mark Byford, and they both offer a, a grovelling apology. And that's not the end of it, because you then have the BBC, in, in typical fashion, has to conduct its own internal inquiry as to what went wrong. Um, and that leads eventually to tighter rules about note-taking for reporters, uh, the scrutiny of anonymous sources, uh, the need for a speedier investigation of government complaints, uh, new training procedures for BBC journalists and, start, and so on. It, it's also that internal inquiry also became a first opportunity for the editor of the Today programme, Kevin Marsh, to explain what went on because he hadn't been <laughs> able to give his account to Lord Hutton. And his account is very clear that essentially the story itself was good. And in fact, the later evidence that emerges in things like the Chilcot inquiry and so on suggests that the story was in essence good. But it had been sort of rather too loosely discussed uh, uh, on air. The delivery and the phrasing had been a bit loose, to use his phrase, phrase. but the editorial checks had been in, in place. So, so in the longer term, um, in a sense, both sides were proved right. Um, but but for that period, it was a terribly, terribly destabilising period for the BBC and particularly for BBC journalism uh, and editorial standards, which were under intense scrutiny. And of course, it was also a reminder that uh, how vulnerable the BBC was to kind of political uh, pressure. Um, so so I think that it shows the, the stakes were extraordinarily high with the BBC. What the BBC reported mattered. Uh, it influenced the news agenda and it gave a kind of official stamp to uh, what was reported in a way that wasn't the case with, with with other newspapers. So so it mattered. It also showed, you know, the determination and the ability of the government to, if it wished to, to interfere with and destabilize and cause problems for the BBC. Um, so so I think it's a it's a it's an extraordinary moment in in recent BBC history. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The BBC, in a sense, was no worse than the rest of British society in terms of its attitudes to, to, to victims at the time. But it was no better. And it should have been better. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Once this sort of short and medium term instability and the scrutiny had, I suppose, abated a little bit in it, in terms of its immediate threat, if you like, were there lessons or changes that happened on a longer term basis as a result of what happened back in 2003 and 2004? I suppose the central allegation for what happened in the aftermath is that it had a chilling effect on BBC journalism. In other words, that the, the, you know, there was a kind of culture of risk aversion as a result of of the conflagration. And, well, it's really hard to see whether or not that is the case, partly because BBC journalism is such a huge and sprawling part of the BBC that you can always point to different different things happening in different places. One of the, the, the figures who was in a position of authority at the time, Roger Mosey, who, who ran television news, suggested that rather than there being a chilling effect, what happened in the aftermath was a return to what he called the right balance between journalistic enterprise and journalistic accuracy. So, so in other words, newspapers by their nature were, were keen on investigating and, 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 and sensation. The BBC had to balance the demands of investigating and coming up with scoops with getting everything absolutely right. And so he sees it as a kind of restoring of a natural balance at the BBC, that the BBC would always have a slightly different, slightly less, a slightly more risk-averse approach. And an organisation in which the standard of proof had always been slightly higher than it was for for the press. And interestingly, in the last two or three weeks, I've had conversations with two very senior and experienced BBC journalists who've, who've retired recently. And they've described how even in the most recent months and years, they believe that there is a culture there in BBC News, which is about scrutiny, doubt, constant editorial discussion and debate about just about every news item that they have to deal with. Uh, and that, that in a sense, is reassuring. It's reassuring to know that there is that level of argument and debate, because if there wasn't that level of argue, argument and debate, I think I'd be far more more worried. So, so maybe there was a sort of touch on the tiller as a result of of Iraq and and, and Gilligan, um, and that brings its own problems as well. If the standard of proof is high, you have to kind of say, well, what is it that constitutes proof of a story being real? 
And actually, that's something which, to some extent, comes and bites the BBC when it comes to a a later scandal uh, over Jimmy Savile. We should talk about Jimmy Savile. So this is the story of the BBC presenter Jimmy Savile, who committed sexual abuse over a period of multiple decades, which led to the establishment of inquiries and a police investigation in 2012 following his death. It's obviously a horrific story. What does it tell us about the corporate culture of the BBC during the time the offences were committed and then later when it came to light? I think several interesting things, but let's let let's just map out the timeline here just to be clear what, what we're dealing with. Jimmy Savile, who's been off and on a regular BBC presenter on radio and television uh, since the 1960s, he dies in October 2011. And soon after, uh, the BBC... Uh, there are two parts of the BBC that are working uh, on programmes about Jimmy Savile. That one part of the BBC is preparing a celebratory tribute show, which is due to go out over Christmas. And another part of the BBC, Newsnight, has a team of investigative reporters who are preparing an expose of Jimmy Savile's history of sexual abuse. Now, the Newsnight report is somewhat mysteriously stopped. And it leaves the field open in early the next year for ITV to break the news about Jimmy Savile's history of sexual abuse. Uh, Now, this obviously reflects very badly on the BBC in two respects. First of all, the BBC helped make Jimmy Savile into a national figure back in the 1960s and the 70s. People had had their suspicions then, but clearly hadn't stopped him. And then, to make matters worse, it felt as if the BBC had, even now, in 2011, 2012, uh, suppressed uh, information about Jimmy Savile. So it was kind of damned for its past and damned for its present. Well, uh, this initiates a whole series of investigations. Um, The ITN journalist Nick Pollard is brought in to investigate. Why did Newsnight drop its reports? Emails are seized, hard drives are seized, 10,000 documents are scrutinised, 19 witnesses are called. You've got uh, the Panorama programme investigating Newsnight, one BBC programme investigating the other. Um, And then uh, matters deteriorate further because perhaps in a desire to show that it was still committed to investigative reporting, Newsnight alleges that a senior Conservative was involved in historic abuse. It doesn't name the person responsible, but we're in a new media age where people could put the pieces together and it rapidly became clear that it was uh, Lord McAlpine who was the suggested figure. And it's then revealed that this is clearly a case of mistaken identity. Newsnight got it wrong. (laughs) Um, Now, in this maelstrom... You've got a very new director general, George Entwistle. He's just weeks into the job. And you've got uh, the chairman of the BBC Trust, Chris Patton, who's agitating for decisive action, perhaps even ending Newsnight completely uh, as a programme. And George Entwistle 
um, is interviewed on the Today programme. It's a pretty rough interview. Uh, he seems ill-prepared uh, for the situation and to answer the questions fully, and he resigns later that day. You then have Pollard, Nick Pollard, producing his report into Why Did Newsnight Drop the Investigation into Jimmy Savile? And he concludes that it wasn't dropped to protect Savile or to protect the tribute programmes. It was the case that the bar of evidence had been set too high, that the editor of the programme had decided that in that investigative report that was being prepared, the testimony of Savile's victims, the women involved, was insufficient. It needed testimony and proof and substantiation from figures of authority, the police, and so on. Um, and that, of course, is the connection, if you like, with what had happened after Iraq. The, the, the BBC was setting the bar uh, of, of evidence very high, but it also meant that the BBC was, as it were, ignoring the testimony, or at least not giving sufficient credit to the testimony of Savile's victims. So that did not look particularly good. You also have the BBC appointing Dame Janet Smith to investigate the historic abuses of Jimmy Savile. Now, that takes a while to investigate. And if you were to read Dame Janet Smith's final report, it makes, you know, sad and and indeed disturbing reading. You've got evidence there that she collates of several serious sexual assaults while Savile had been working on Top of the Pops, and Jim will fix it. Um, the BBC is not the only organisation involved here. There are a number of uh, other organisations and hospitals and so on. But it's clear that there had been complaints at the time, but they had not been passed to senior management. They might have been aware of gossip or rumour, but they said that they weren't aware of specific actual examples of misconduct, and they hadn't had an admission from Jimmy Savile himself. So what Dame Janet Smith concluded was that the BBC as a corporate body had, in the sort of strictly legal sense, not known of his abuse. Senior figures who could be said to represent the corporation had not known. But what it suggested was that there was clearly something that had been wrong with the culture of the BBC, for junior staff to to have felt that they couldn't pass on details or that if they did, they would be ignored or that senior staff weren't inclined to investigate more more thoroughly. And it was that kind of failure of culture, really, that, that I think where the BBC comes out of it pretty badly. The BBC, in a sense, was no worse than the rest of British society in terms of its attitudes to, to, to victims at the time. But it was no better, and it should have been better. It was more concerned with damage to the BBC's own reputation. reputation. Dame Janet Smith also talks about a silo mentality in the BBC, where there are so many different departments that don't talk to each other that information did not get shared, that it was a BBC that was nervous of losing talent. It tolerated bad behaviour from celebrities in order to hold on to them. And also, it was a macho culture in some parts of the BBC. There were just too few women in senior 
positions. So, I mean, by the time Dame Janet Smith reports in 2016, uh, you've got a kind of a pretty profoundly depressing portrait of of some aspects of BBC culture in the 70s and 80s. And the question that the BBC had to confront and deal with publicly and privately was, by 2016, had culture, had corporate culture changed? Had working practices changed? So it set a kind of high bar for the BBC to 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 achieve in terms of changing its inside working culture. Given given those failings, what lessons did the BBC learn from from this episode? It seems to me that the key question that the BBC had to learn, quite apart from the immediate journalistic one of, of you know, to repeat that phrase of, of Roger Moses, getting the right balance between journalistic enterprise and journalistic accuracy, was something about the working culture in the BBC. It was about uh, making it very, very clear that there had to be mechanisms for whistleblowers. There had to be a culture which encouraged junior staff to report misdemeanors as they saw it, for information to move rapidly through the system so that mistakes could be spotted, misbehavior spotted, and so on. So there was a there had to be a, a change in the whole working environment that in some sense made it an institution that listened to the voices of junior staff much more. And and to some extent, by the time Dame Janet Smith reported in 2016, the BBC had put some of these new processes in place, uh, new mechanisms for, for whistleblowers, for reporting um, alleged misdemeanours or concerns and, and, and so on. But it was, it was clearly work in progress and is still work in progress for any institution. Are there any other scandals that you think we should also talk about while we're talking about this particular subject? I think it's worth mentioning a couple. Um, And it's interesting that if you talk to lots of people who worked in radio as opposed to television, one of the things they say is that actually the row over so-called Saxgate actually had more impact on their working life than the Savile controversy. Now, what do I mean by Saxgate? We might have forgotten this already. Back in October 2008, uh, Jonathan Ross is joined on his Radio 2 show by the comedian Russell Brand. And they have an interview scheduled with Andrew Sachs, the actor. Uh, and the pair are heard on air leaving messages on the answer machine, including kind of quite lewd and crude messages. And, and they're laughing about it. It's a pre-recorded programme. So this isn't something that happens sort of spontaneously and live and and couldn't be stopped. It was something that had already been recorded and someone perhaps could have stopped. You've got uh, complaints coming into the newspapers. Ofcom investigate. The Radio 2 controller resigns. Jonathan Ross is suspended. Charles Moore rampages away in the Daily Telegraph uh, uh, complaining about BBC arrogance and that he wouldn't pay his licence fee until until Ross is, is, is sacked. I mean, looking at it now, it, it feels sort of an extraordinary kind of brief flash, a kind of not a conscious decision, a temporary lapse of judgment. Serious, a serious lapse in taste, but not 
a hanging offence, as it were. But it showed that an isolated incident could bring the whole of the BBC into disrepute very, very quickly. And what it does is it introduces into the BBC a much, much more thorough culture of compliance, where programme makers have to kind of show and evidence that they've thought through all the risks that might be involved in a programme in terms of kind of lapses, editorial lapses and and, and so on. That sort of a nervousness about making sure that nothing goes wrong. And this is a difficult thing for broadcasting because, you know, if you if it's too compliant, if it's too cautious, then you're going to end up with bland programming. So it's something that that people, particularly people in radio, worried about a great a great deal. I think the other controversy I think it's worth reminding us about, which is still ongoing, is about pay, uh, and particularly the pay of of, uh, female staff. And this erupts uh, very clearly after Savile uh, and the fallout of Savile, when the BBC is trying to be more transparent and indeed is required by the government to publish its pay scales for senior staff. And it's when it publishes those pay scales that it becomes very, very clear very quickly that it, that some female members of staff uh, are not necessarily being paid the same as male members of staff with equivalent, equivalent roles. Um, so, for instance, in 2017, you've got uh, Carrie Gracie, BBC's uh, China editor, who is clear that that she wasn't being paid the the equivalent of, say, the BBC's North American uh, editor. Uh, and uh, later, 2019, Samira Ahmed uh, complains about being underpaid compared with male counterparts for her role on Newswatch. And you have uh, organisations that are formed within the BBC, BBC Women, as an organisation, a press group, to support their campaigns for for equal pay. And so that's something which is, in a sense, still unresolved. What I would say is that if you look at the data, the, the, the disparity between male and female pay in the BBC is actually less than it is for many of the newspapers that attack the BBC uh, for this. Uh, but it's still clearly work in progress. The gap is still is still there. One of the one of the fascinating common threads among all these quite disparate scandals is that the BBC often finds itself in the unique position of having to report on itself, often internally, as we've discussed, Panorama reporting on Newsnight and so on. Does this set itself apart from other media organisations and does it cause the BBC problems? Yes, it does. I mean, this is where the BBC as a public corporation is both admirable in its transparency uh, and extremely vulnerable as a result of that. The Dame Janet Smith report on on Jimmy Savile, uh, the Pollard uh, report, um, all of these reports that we've mentioned that have investigated the BBC and its failures are available on BBC Online. You go to the BBC website and you can download these reports and you can read them. You can look at and check the salaries of anyone at the BBC who's earning over 150000 whether they're sort of on camera or behind the scenes. You can even check on their expense claims and, and so on. All of this, in a sense, is is right 
and admirable because it's a publicly funded organisation and we should know how the money is being spent uh, and, and so on. But of course, as people in the BBC are acutely aware, it provides ammunition for the BBC's enemies. And you cannot control how this information is used. If it's used selectively, it clearly could be used to damage the BBC. The BBC was aware of the fact, for instance, that publishing the salaries of its top uh, personnel is, to quote one phrase, a poacher's charter. It allows commercial rivals to know exactly what they might need to offer to, to poach a member of staff or on-air talent uh, away from the BBC. And it does allow journalists, if they're so minded, to quote selectively and create a a story that might be damaging about the BBC. And very often it it just can be one small misdemeanour, if you like, uh, that again blows up and damages the reputation of the BBC as a whole. So it's it's a it's a difficult position for the BBC. It's clearly committed to to transparency, but that transparency is way ahead of what its commercial rivals uh, would be doing, and therefore it is providing ammunition uh, for its enemies. Finally, then, do you think that these scandals? should change the way in which we see the BBC and its history, I suppose? That's a difficult question to answer, really. I I mean, I've probably quoted this before in in our series of podcasts. Charlotte Higgins said in, in her writing about the BBC that the BBC has crisis in its bones. Um, and that's true. That's true. It's an endless series of crises. Um, The task of the historian, I suppose, is to understand how and why they happened. It's it's not just about the particulars of that moment, the, the event itself. It's the sort of structural reasons that lead up to it, you know, is there something, for instance, that is slowly happening and taking place within BBC news culture that leads to a situation where uh, an allegation is made on the Today programme about the government's Iraq policy? Is there something that is happening in the culture of entertainment at the BBC that allows for someone like Jimmy Savile to do what he did? And and it seems to me that it's the task of the historian is to kind of sift through these individual moments of crisis and to try and see some of the connecting points, to try and see what at a kind of deeper level is going on. So, for instance, when it comes to Jimmy Savile, we can detail his offences and all the awful things that he did, but the historian, I suppose, has to stand back and say, is this telling us something about the BBC uh, uh, in this period? For me, it's telling it's telling me something about a sort of macho culture, a kind of culture which is shared more broadly in British society in the 1970s, which is to give insufficient credit to the victims of sexual abuse. Um, and And it's it's trying to sort of draw out those 
those deeper reasons for these these flashpoints. I suppose one of the things I would say is that there's a sort of analogy here, I think, with the Apollo moon program, uh, which is that the engineers who, who designed the Saturn V rocket that took the astronauts to the moon in the 1960s were building something that had millions of parts. And they calculated that because there were so many millions of parts, uh, something like, I don't know, 10 or 20,000 of them would fail on any given mission to the moon and that that would be okay. It would still work and the astronauts would still probably come back. And in many ways, the BBC is like a Saturn V rocket. It's it's a vast organisation that is doing hundreds and thousands of things simultaneously on radio, television, online, and so on. Things are going to go wrong. They're bound to go wrong. And if you create an institution where nothing is going to go wrong, there's probably a very, very big price that has been paid for that in terms of being ultra-cautious, ultra-risk-averse. And in the result of that, surely, would be the kind of bland broadcasting that would turn us away from the BBC and would actually mean that the BBC was doing nothing of value or interest. So I think, and this is not a defence of the failures, but it's trying to understand that failures are part of what broadcasting is. They are bound to happen. Uh, and and sometimes we have to, I think, be grown up enough to accept these as just as much a part of the history of the BBC as all the successes and all the things that we celebrate. That was David Hendy. His book, The BBC, A People's History, is out now published by Profile. And you can also read more from David in every issue of BBC History magazine. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt.